All right, well, we are in our seven elephant series. The elephant today, number five, is our sex life isn't great. Now, um, this may not apply to everybody. Some of you in here are like, my sex life is great. I could teach this, you know, so full step aside, I'm coming up here and, and we're killing it. That's fantastic. For some of you, you're saying that's an understatement. Our sex life is a disaster. But at some point in our married life, this becomes a reality. There are seasons when our sex life isn't great. There are seasons when we're not quite firing right. Yet, in God's word, there is this incredible, exciting vision for sex and sexuality that we want to embrace. And any marriage that is struggling can get better. Any marriage that's struggling can heal. And for those of you who are not yet married or single again, I want you to embrace every single word of this because God's got a great plan for you either in a future marriage or you can be an advocate for God's vision of sexuality. Because I believe this, sex is the barometer of the human condition. You know what a barometer is, right? It, it measures kind of how things are in the atmosphere. Uh, metaphorically, a barometer is one thing symbolizing everything else. I do believe sex is the barometer of the human condition. To put it this way, if a society is broken sexually, all of humanity is broken. However, if a society is flourishing sexually, uh, they are flourishing in their humanity. Sex is like that temperature gauge. How is a culture doing? Watch whether sexuality is, is this inhuman thing or this incredibly human experience of dignity and honor, and that is a measuring gauge of humanity itself. Uh, I'm gonna show you the most detailed vision of married sexuality in the Bible. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7, two through four, and get this, it is truly beautiful. Because there's so much sexual immorality in the world, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Notice the balance here. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. The wife gives authority over to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourself more completely to prayer. There's reasons why the Treadway family doesn't do prayer an awful lot. Um, <laughs> Isn't that cool? This very supportive, mutual idea that our, our bodies belong to one another and we are to give ourselves for the needs of one another. It's very balanced. Keep in mind that was written 2,000 years ago. That, that's ancient times. This is an age where women were treated little more than property and yet it is equally, perfectly, wonderfully balanced to create dignity for the man and especially for the woman. All throughout the Bible, cover to cover, cover, it brings equal dignity to the woman. And so there's been obviously terrible times, including recently, when women are treated as not equal with men or men exercise power over a woman, particularly sexually. It is horribly broken and horribly dysfunctional. In God's word, from cover to cover, women are equally uh, dignified and equal power, equal authority, equal say over their own bodies and here an equal vision for serving each other in the marital relationship. This is not that the spouse owns the body of another, that's barbaric, right? But there's a willingness to give ourselves for the betterment of the other. In that respect, sex is neither demanded nor denied. In a marriage, sex is neither demanded nor denied. That's the beauty of God's vision. Uh, but before we get deeper into this, I want to give you a little contract uh, as we approach this subject that's not often taught about in church, even though it's spoken about often in the Bible. Here's a little contract for our time together. I will speak in generalities. 
Uh, and because I speak in generalities, everything I say may not perfectly fit your specific unique circumstance. In which case, I want you to please feel free to adjust everything I say to your context. Just make the adjustment. When I speak in a generality, feel free to say, that doesn't apply to me, and adjust it. Third, I will be sensitive. I know this subject is very, very difficult for some people. Maybe there has been abuse, or maybe your marriage is just a wreck in this situation, and you might be a little uncomfortable talking about it. Um, I will be sensitive, I guarantee. Fourth, I will make every effort to be balanced. Uh, Jenny and I have taught on sex and sexuality a lot. We usually do it together. Uh, we are marrying off our daughter in 20 days, and if I asked her to prepare a sermon with me this last week, she'd have divorced me. So I'm on my own, uh, but we prepared this material together, so I will be balanced men and women. The language will be respectful. Uh, and so as we said, this is PG, nothing weird or, or, or graphic. <clears throat> it will be language you will not often hear in church, but just to be clear, there is language in Song of Solomon that I'd be arrested for, for reading in church. And so it's, the Bible is, is very, very clear and sometimes very explicit about sex and sexuality, uh, but sometimes we don't talk about it enough at, at church. So some of the language here might not be language that is typically associated with church. Try not to be offended um, with that. I, I, I gather this group's gonna be pretty cool. Um, let's capture the biblical vision of sex in Genesis chapter two. Genesis 2, we have this <clears throat> incredible uh, <clears throat> vision of God creating man and woman together, bringing them together, and a vision for their relationship. Here's how it goes. At last, this is Adam and Eve, at last, the man exclaimed, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from a man. Now, you know the, the Genesis 2 structure is woman taken from the side of man and then bringing them back together as a married couple. This is not just about Adam and Eve. It's not about man and woman. It's not about marriage. It's about all of God's uh, story, all of God's vision to bring everything that's separated together. Uh, keep in mind, the entire narrative of the Bible is bringing everything that's separated together, bringing, in this case, man and woman together in the unity of marriage, bringing races together, bringing man and God together. The whole Bible narrative is about bringing what is separate together, and that begins with man and woman. It's very beautiful. This is the union of souls, union of souls. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is one flesh. This is a, a, a sexual union as well as a spiritual union. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but felt no shame. This is the perfect oneness that God has designed for a man and a woman in the context of marriage, a union of souls, and a union of bodies. It's a very, very beautiful vision. It's a vision that we can seize, we can understand, we can know, and we can try to practice in our own marriage and then pass on to the next generation. But there are challenges to this vision. <clears throat> One of the challenges is that the Christian church has been awkward about sex and sexuality. Here's a few reasons why. The first is that the Old Testament is replete with sexual dysfunction. We just read from the Old Testament, the beginning paragraphs of the Old Testament lift, us the, lift up, up this vision of one man, one woman in union together spiritually and sexually, uh, and, and that's God's best, that's God's highest, and yet rarely, if ever, in the Old Testament do men and women live that out. Uh, the Old Testament, of course, the context is ancient civilization where women were considered property. You could take multiple wives. You got married for children, but you had mistresses for pleasure. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you have even heroes of the Bible living a life that's not in line with God's vision. 
Now, God works with grace, and he works within that culture to try to lead us toward the best, but the Old Testament is not clean in this regard, so it creates kind of an awkwardness. How can we, on, one, on the one hand, lift up this biblical vision of sex and sexuality, and yet virtually no one is living that out, even the heroes of the Bible, right? So it creates an awkwardness. You go to the New Testament, the church as we know it uh, was birthed within the hedonistic Roman Empire. Now, in the Roman Empire, anything went. The philosophy was Epicureanism. Their mentality is that we are destined by the gods to take over the whole world and to experience every pleasure of the world. So we will take slaves for our benefit. We will take sex slaves. We will have sex with whatever and whoever we want. And so there were no limits for the Roman citizen. No limits on age, no limits on gender. I mean, it was disgusting. Of the first 16 Roman emperors, 15 of them were bisexual just because they could, right? It was gross. Now, the, the Christian church was birthed in that culture, that Epicurean hedonistic culture. And, and even within that, God, again, is gracious, but he's, he's saying, here's my vision. Here's my vision. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This church in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians was not honoring God with their body. They were very typically Roman in their culture. And yet in that, God shows grace and still points them to the high calling of sex and sexuality within the context of marriage. And so from the very beginning, the Christian church was known for sort of, you know, pushing against this dehumanizing sexual culture and lifting up uh, God's high vision for sexuality, but there's always that tension. In the Catholic church, I, I believe they made the mistake of lifting up celibacy as higher than marriage sexuality, which created all kinds of dysfunction there that still exists today. We've talked about that enough here. Um, but in God's word, it's, it's sexuality in the context of marriage that is the, this high vision um, as far as what he's designed for us. Uh, third, Puritanism of the Reformed Church. The Puritans in England wanted pure reformation. They were splitting from the Catholic Church. They didn't think some of the reformers were reforming enough. And so they wanted pure doctrine and pure living. And so uh, they were known as dour prudes. The Puritism, Puritans were known for being dour prudes. In other words, it was just no. No to every pleasure. In fact, Puritanism became known as the anti-pleasure, right? And, and so they had this kind of staunchness about them that it was no, no, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And, uh, and, but they did a pretty good job at valuing sex within the context of marriage. But generally speaking, their reputation was one of dour prudery. Now, they came over in the boats, 21,000 of them, to, to help found the United States of America, those 21,000 Puritans became 6 million Puritans, and so that Puritan sort of sensibility still exists in a lot of the Christian church in America today. And that involves a few things. So the Puritans brought this sense that government is responsible for legislating morality. That's left over from Puritanism. That women are inferior. Um, they brought that with them, that women were simply to serve their husbands, only men can be in leadership. That's a Puritanism that still has some strains today prudish sexuality. So if the Christian church is known for prudish, uh, sort of, you know, uh, no, 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 you can't do anything that feels good, that's left over from the Puritanism uh, age. And this over-spirituality, Puritans were overly spiritual. They saw devils and demons everywhere. That's why there were these witch hunts, thousands killed in witch hunts in uh, 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 Europe. 
um, about a dozen and a half killed in America through witch trials, the Salem witch trials. And so this over-spiritualization of finding devils and demons everywhere, that's a leftover from Puritanism. So Christianity today is still very awkward when it comes to sex and sexuality. Uh, We don't talk about it a lot. We don't preach about it a lot. It's just awkward. Another reason why it's awkward is the moral majority of the 80s and the 90s. The moral majority was an understandable pendulum swing from the neo-Epicureanism of the 60s and the 70s. For those of you old enough uh, to have lived in the 60s and 70s, you know that that was a race back to the Roman Empire, right? Whatever feels good, do it, free love, no rules. And so the, the United States re- reacted against that in the 80s, saying, listen, this is just dehumanizing. We've got to get a sense of morality and honor back. And so what the moral majority did was they stood for a lot of things. I would say for sure most of them biblical, but the way they went about it um, you know, may not have been the best in retrospect. Uh, they were fiercely pro-life. Uh, fiercely creationist, and so uh, anti-evolution. They wanted to legislate not only curriculum, but legislate prayer in schools, to legislate traditionalist marriage, and a purity movement started in the moral majority. So if you grew up in youth group in the 80s and 90s, no doubt, um, ladies, you might have had a purity ring. Men, you may have made a purity vow. Purity was a big deal. The 60s and 70s were so hedonistic, there was this drive for purity, and and just frankly, again in retrospect, it was overblown. It was overblown thinking that law and fear was going to get us morally compliant when it comes to sex and sexuality. And that's not what changes the heart. I remember being in youth group in the 80s, absolutely afraid I was gonna get AIDS. I mean, my youth pastor was taking that AIDS thing and just every time we got together, hey, you're gonna get AIDS if you have sex. Like, oh, I've never had sex. It's just fear and manipulation and law, right? Threats to try to get us compliant or change legislation in order to get us compliant. And so there is this awkwardness about sex and sexuality, uh, particularly in the Christian church, but there shouldn't be. God is very free to talk about sex and sexuality. Uh, God's a big fan of sex and sexuality. He created it, right? He gave it to, to us as a gift, to put it this way. God created sex to be an exhilarating part of being fully alive, It's the union of two people in soul and body, deepening an unbreakable bond of intimate connection for life, thoroughly enjoying the full expression of their sexuality with one another. This is God's design. There shouldn't be anything awkward about it. It should be more about what we get to experience as a married couple living by this design, as opposed to rules and regulations and law and fear and threats. We ought to be very comfortable talking about this because it really is an amazing gift that God gave us. But God gave us a gift that comes with some challenges. Here's one of the challenges. There are differences between men and women. That's not shocking. It's absolutely true. God did this, I think, to mess with us. He wants us to love each other, men and women, and so he made it hard. You know, I want to show how much you love each other by wiring you totally differently, particularly when it comes to sexuality. Here's just a few examples. And again, I'm speaking in generalities, so adjust if you need to. Men are wired to crave sex like food. Women, you may not believe this. It's true. When your guy gets antsy, it's not just because he's a pervert. There may be a little bit of that, but there's a craving, a chemical craving for sex like we are all wired to crave food. So ladies, if you didn't eat for two days, how would you feel, right? Don't eat for two days. That's what it's like for a guy to not have sex for a while, 
right? It's physiological. There's a craving there. So, you know, give the guy a little bit of understanding when that craving becomes, you know, he's kind of short and terse and he he's, he's, might be starving. <laughs> Women, sexual desire is a lot more complex. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Men are wired to desire sex between one and four times a week. Again, adjust if you need to. Women are wired to desire sex between one and four times a month. Again, God did that intentionally just to mess with us. The libido of a man is pretty simple. Chemicals course through our bodies that increase over a period of time, and we have visual stimulus, and we're ready to go, right? For women, nobody knows. And that, that's not hyperbole. Nobody knows. I, I, did a, I did a lot of research on this. I had to bring my wife. Seriously, wife, I, this is for research for church on a woman's libido. Study after study about what kind of makes a woman tick. Is, is it... Uh, is, it, is it emotions? Is it hormones? Uh, is it visual? Is it chemical? Is it environmental? Is it what's on TV? Is it her mood of the day? Is it did you help me with the dishes? Is it the thing you said three weeks ago last Tuesday? It's all of it. All of it kind of creates a woman's libido. Impossibly complex, right? Men. This is more of a disability than an ability, but men can be more casual about sex. There's just something about our wiring we can be more casual. It's not so much true with women. Women are more sensitive to environment and context and relationship. Um, men, we fantasize about sex acts. Women fantasize about connecting sexually. There's equal n numbers of fantasies. There's this idea that men fantasize about sex more than women. That's not true. It's just different. It just looks different. Uh, men, climax an average of about four minutes into the deed. Women take more than 10 minutes. Um, just do the math here, right? Um, most men climax during sex, uh, most women may not. And again, this is very complicated. I'm not gonna get into it too much, but, but this is the goal. I mean, this really needs to be the goal. This, this happens pretty easily. This needs to be the goal. This takes a little bit of work, a lot of communication, a little study, a little research, trial and error, but this really is the goal. Um, this is probably the most important uh, deal to, that we'll land on at the end here. For men, sex is about mutual affirmation. Women, you're rolling your eyes right now going, no, I know what it's like for, I know what it's about for men. It's not. If it's just about getting to the finish line, this, this is not church speak. If it's just about getting to the finish line, a man can do that all on his own. Doesn't need your help. Sex is about connecting with his wife in mutual affirmation. So for a man, there's nothing better in the world for his wife to affirm him sexually and nothing better in the world for a man to affirm his wife sexually. It's about mutual affirmation. For women, it's more about mutual connection. And we'll land on this at the end. This is really the, the crux of it all. But there are differences between men and women that create a little bit of a challenge when it comes to sexuality. There are also, I've identified six sexual seasons in any normal marriage. Again, you can adjust as you wish here. But there are six sexual seasons in a normal relationship and marriage. Season number one, dating and engagement. The dating and engagement season is white hot. It's new, it's fresh, you put on your best, you smell your best, look your best, and the sexual tension is huge. And if you're a Christian couple, you know, you, you go over the line and you feel guilty and we're not gonna do that again. The next day you go over the line, you feel guilty and you're not gonna do that again. And it's this whole you know, thing, it's white hot, you can't keep your hands off each other. You go on a date for sure, but you know what's happening after the date. It's just, it's just the way it goes, it's white hot. Number two, newlywed, you get married, that can be a, a red hot deal. Now you've, you've got this covenant together, you've got this, you know, your apartment, your house, whatever, there's no kids, 
um, and, and you are, are taking care of business really nicely as a newlywed usually. Then routines set in. After a matter of months or years, routines set in. Sex life can get a little warm. It's no longer new. You can kind of get into some rhythms. Okay, yeah, that's Tuesday. I guess that's our day, you know, and you just kind of get in habits. It's not white hot or red hot anymore, but it's warm. It could still be okay, but th these are routines. Then what happens? Yeah, kids. Ice. Cold. That's normal. Uh, typically when you have kids, um, you know, it's, it, body gets weird, hormones get weird, uh, the relationship, you know, is navigating what it's like to have this, to, to have a pregnant wife and then this newborn. There's body changes, um, there are hormonal changes, there's postpartum issues that come, um, and the kid takes the priority. That's the reality. All maternal instincts step in, right, kick in. Kids, number one, husband's in the back seat, or he's dragging behind the bumper. <laughs> Husband feels all rejected. He's kind of whiny. He gets short with you. What about me? You know, but he doesn't want to whine too much because he'll offend you and he'll start a big fight. So he feels by himself. He might get more into work and you're getting into your kids. And it's just, that's just normal. And the sex life can become ice, ice cold. This is when typically couples need a lot of help. And we don't provide the help couples need in this regard. I mean, having kids is traumatic on marriages. We don't provide enough help, but we need to. Um, I mean, you can just imagine uh, the, the woman's breasts used to be wonderful erogenous zones. Now they're public utilities. I mean, it, it, every single thing changes in a marriage and, and, and the sex life can become ice cold. Even as the kids kind of grow up, you know, you try to, to, you know, to get some time in with a nap and they're paying at the door. And I mean, nothing is working out when you have kids. Uh, now, if a couple can get through those early stages of kids, there is this season where you can find new rhythms. The kids get a little older, they go off to school, you can kind of you know, catch some activity here and there. Um, they, they're, you know, they get older, they get their licenses, you maybe have some nights together, so you can kind of rebuild some new rhythms if you can get past this. A lot of times, couples can't get past the resentments here and their marriage doesn't make it. But if you can get past this, get some help, then you can find good new rhythms. And then you can experience empty nest sex which I have heard, I'm not there yet, but I have heard can be pretty dang exciting. You have the house, you have your time, you're making more money, you get to go on trips, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and it can be really awesome. So those are the six normal seasons of marriage, but they can each come with their own challenge. We also have cultural brokenness. Every culture is broken sexually. It's part of our journey towards the likeness of Christ, right? Our journey out of brokenness to, to live in God's best. So there is cultural brokenness when it comes to sex. Most, I think, tragically, we are, are a pornography-saturated world. This world is saturated in pornography. It dehumanizes, it demeans, it humiliates. It, it, it just, the, the treatment of women just by, just by having pornography, viewing pornography, and having it be so ubiquitous, it's absolutely everywhere. If you take the top 10 websites um, on earth, that pales in comparison to the traffic of pornography. It has been studied several times, up to 30% of all internet traffic is pornography, up to 30%, billions of sites and images. Uh, it, it is tragic what this does to, does to women. It's most tragic that it's so readily available. I know when I was young, I had to work to get a couple of pictures. I mean, it was hard work. 
Now, you don't have to work at all. It's, all, it's literally right here. I could, I could access on this device as I'm preaching every bit of the most disgusting pornography on earth. How do you know I'm not? It's all right here. And then we give devices to, to kids. And I, wa- I want us to be, I know this is gonna, I'm gonna sound whatever here. We didn't give our kids devices until they were in high school. And, and I know, I mean, believe me, we heard it all. Every kid in my third grade class, okay, fine, you don't. You get it when you're in high school. And when we gave our kids a device in high school, it did not come with a web browser. We locked the web browser. And so through their entire, until they were 18, they did not have a web browser accessible to them because the damage that pornography does. And if you don't think your kids are watching, my kid would not watch, yeah, they are. They are. Everything, every disgusting thing the world has to offer is right here, always. It's a pornographic, saturated world, and that has impact, real impact. There are abuses. It is said that one in three women have been sexually abused and one in six men have been sexually abused. So here's this incredible gift that God gave us, and yet that gift has been turned into a weapon for uh, men and women, most tragically young men and women. There's casual sex. Casual sex has always been around. The millennial generation perfected it. These are the, uh, the hookups, right? Uh, friends with benefits. There's all kinds of things. Sex was not designed to be casual. Uh, in fact, just one quick little anecdote. Uh, when women engage sexually, they release a hormone. It's called a bonding chemical. It's a bonding hormone. The more sexual partners there are, the less women uh, release that chemical to the point where sex just becomes this numb thing. It's not designed to be casual. It's designed to be wonderfully complex. And then there's a devaluing of marriage. There's a cultural, societal devaluing of marriage. Um, People are getting married later. Some of that's good. You know, you don't want to get married, you know, too young and make some mistakes. But the average age of, of marriage is 28, 29 right now. Uh, there's also fewer and fewer people getting married because there's so much of this going on. There's a sense that I'm connected here, but not really this covenantal deep bond that God has designed. So there's a devaluing of marriage, and, and that just reduces us to other things that aren't very healthy. But despite the cultural problems regarding sex and sexuality, there's still this biblical vision in the midst of it. Philippians 2.15, as hard as it is, strive as families, strive as men and women, and strive in raising our kids to live innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Don't let this vision die. Don't let this vision die. We can do it, not by threats, not by laws, not by you know, religious um, you know, pressures, but in the sense that God has designed us for wonderful connection with our spouses, spiritually and physically. He's designed this beautiful gift. Even though the world is, is corrupt and even though there's all these scars and these, these things that so devalue God's gift, let's not lose sight of that. Sex is God's gift to married couples to thoroughly enjoy as a key way to deepen their relational bond. This is why God gave us the gift of sexuality. To thoroughly enjoy as a key way to, to deepen their relational bond and perhaps make some babies along the way. It's a very, very cool gift that God gave us. We've got about six minutes left, and, and in the last six minutes, I'm gonna give you some very practical things that may help you. Again, some of you are total pros on this. You can teach me a thing or two, but uh, here's some practical things that could help you. Um, let's talk about... Um, how a man works. This will not take a lot of time. There's the mind, the emotion, and what we'll call the goodies, all right? The guy's real concern is the goodies, right? After two or three days without sex, there's gonna be that hunger that, that comes as a result. And the mind and the emotion are gonna go sideways because there's this chemical hunger that is building. 
And so women, it's really simple, really simple. Show up naked, bring food. It's, that's, this is optional, by the way, this is a bonus. But this is really about it. I mean, there's sometimes a guy, you get in a fight and a guy says, oh, we're not gonna do anything tonight. That's pretty rare, it happens, pretty rare. But guys can pretty well go anytime. So here's some things that you can give to your guy as a, a gift. Um, frequent sex and, you know, just a, just a good regular rhythm. Creative sex, nothing that gets out of your comfort zone, but just kind of walk that journey. And then affirming sex. A, a guy's real goal is to be affirmed as a man and to affirm his wife through that sexual relationship. So um, very cool stuff there. Let's go back to the, the picture. I'm just going to put it, again, this is not normal church language. But how you treat a man's goodies is how you treat the man. That ladies, just put that in your brain. How you treat the goodies is how you treat the man. That's just kind of the rule. So uh, for men, sex is about mutual affirmation. And so as a, be as affirming as you can be towards your man. And I'll give you an example of this in Song of Solomon. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a, is a sex book. It's these poems between uh, a lover and her husband, right? And there, there's these wonderful um, uh, bits of poetry going back and forth. Listen to how this woman is affirming her man. You ready? And she's declaring this. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes. He's leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover's like a gazelle or a young stag. So just imagine what you might say to your husband to affirm him in this way. Calling me a young stag is a good way to start. <laughs> Look, there he stands behind our wall. He's gazing at me through the windows. He's peering at me through the lattice. What does this say? This says, this is a woman who understands how her man is wired. She's understanding he's chemical visual, right, being, and, and she understands. He's looking at me. He's visual, and that's okay, and she's affirming him. Here's this young stag, right? So let's go back to, to the picture here. Uh, if you want to really win a man's mind and emotion, it's through the goodies, all right? That's really simple. Let's talk about the ladies here. These are notes from my wife, so I'm not telling you I'm a, this pro here. But let's look at the, at the woman. Mind, emotions, and the goodies. This is where a woman lives sexually. Primarily, this is where she lives. What does a woman want, men? Here's what a woman wants sexually. You're not, what does this have to do with sex? Everything. Here's what she wants sexually. She wants to be treasured. Treasure your wife. She wants to be appreciated, valued, thanked. She wants to know she is beautiful in your eyes. Prove that to her. She wants to be understood, so listen to her, know her. She wants to be romance. Doesn't have to be all the time, but enough to just let her know that she's special. She wants to be secure, so don't lead her down roads she does not want to go in. This is what a woman wants sexually. It's about more of the mind and the emotions, right? So let's go back to the picture here. Um, men, the key to a woman's body is through her mind and through her emotions. So I'm going to close just uh, another minute here with two very practical ideas for you. How do you, how do you pull this off? How do you talk about it? You know, we're talking about it pretty openly here in church, and there's a lot of great, wonderful biblical passages about it, but how do you actually work this out in church? How do you communicate these things? You know, we, we've got some good things we can work on, um, but how do, you, how do you work this out? Here, here's an example. Take it or leave it. A lot of couples have some success. Take any kind of a bowl, any kind of a small bowl, put this on uh, wherever you drop your keys or you have your phone, wherever your kind of casual places in, in your kitchen or your nook, put that little bowl there and then find something that you might want to put in that bowl. I have a toy hamburger here. Hubby is hungry. 
Just walk away. Take care of your business. <laughs> Wife's doing her thing. She looks at the bowl. Oh, hubby is hungry. Now, that, this is a cool thing because here, here are some things that don't work well. They sometimes work, but don't work well. Husbands, we are hungry. We grope. And that's our very Neanderthal signal that we're ready to go. And I'm like, all right, well, there, you could also do the, uh, you know, unrefined way of a husband coming up to his wife, hey, uh, want to have sex? <laughs> now, nine times out of 10, the woman's answer is going to be, are you at, truly asking me right now if I want to have sex? The answer nine times out of 10, no. Maybe 10 times out of 10, no. So the, kind of the, the, the physiology of a woman is that she will get herself ready. It just takes a little more than a grope or you want to have sex. And so this is kind of a cool way. It's a little subtle. You're being clear, but you're also saying, hey, this is where I'm at, where are you at? And over time, a, a woman kind of gets herself ready, so she starts to look for opportunities, and then maybe you kind of connect. And it's really cool. Now, listen, women, you're always in control of your body. You are always in control of your body. So what if you have some issues in your marriage, and this ain't going down? It's super simple. <laughs> we are closed for business. And, and we have something to talk about. And so I guarantee you, right, you have this hungry guy here. He knows he's busted. And so he's going to come to you with puppy dog eyes. What do I do? What's wrong? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? And you work some things out and, 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 and get back to it. So that's kind of a fun way to, to learn the rhythm of communication about sex. Um, after a while in marriage, you, you, can, you don't have to do this. You can just kind of talk about it. And, and so what you can do, and, and something that I would recommend, is that you sit down with your spouse on a regular basis and you talk about it. Uh, okay, what's coming up this week? This is truly what my wife and I do. What's coming up this week? Okay, when, when, you're, when you're available? All right, here's when I'm available. Our sex life's in our calendar, no joke. We have four kids. We have six human beings in the house right now. If we don't do this and put it on the calendar, ain't nothing happening. And so we schedule it, we prioritize it, and when it's on the schedule, right, She's ready, I'm ready, it goes down, and I guarantee I'm on my best behavior, right? So it just kind of all works out wonderfully. Now, some people might say, all right, well, scheduling a sex life, that's not very romantic. It's not very romantic. I disagree with you. Let, let, me, let me show you the illustration of, of food again, right? We have three meals a day, some of us, three meals a day. Now, why do you have three meals a day? Why do you have a regular meal. You have a regular meal because if you don't have a regular meal, you're going to be in kind of some trouble. You're going to be cranky at, you know, best, and you're going to be starving at worst. So you have regular meals. It doesn't mean every meal is some, you know, firework show. It's just a meal, but it keeps you healthy. It keeps you, you know, you're, you're fine. And so a regular sex life can be that. You're just having your meal, and you're just, you're healthy, and you're good. You're solid. But just because you have regular meals doesn't mean every once in a while you have a special meal. And, and you have this meal that's awesome, right? You make it yourself, or you go out and get it. And so a regular sexual diet doesn't mean it's not romantic. It just means you're taking care of each other. You're, you're loving, connecting. It's this regular, you know, intimate rhythm that you've got. But then you also have those very special times as well. So it doesn't remove romance. It doesn't remove sponta spontaneity. Uh, it just creates great communication. So hopefully this was helpful to you today. This biblical vision of sex, you know, pushing through the awkwardness of it. You know, let's embrace this journey. If you need help, we are here for you. Pastoral counseling and Safe Harbor is around. Any marriage can experience this. Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for um, this wonderful gift that you gave us, the gift of sex and sexuality. And, and we confess it is sometimes awkward uh, in church and in Christianity given our history. I pray that we would sort of... Um, 
ease the tension, look at your biblical vision, embrace that, and try to put this to work in our marriage. And they try to raise our, our kids, despite the culture around us, to raise our kids with this high view of sex and sexuality. It is, it is beautiful. It is a great gift. Uh, help us to embrace it and live it out in a way that lives for the betterment of the other uh, so that you'd be honored in our marriages. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.